I'm Tavis Smiley, and I'm uh, pleased to have you hanging out with us today uh, in this hour of our program. And in this hour, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jefferson Cowie about his best-selling book, Freedom's Dominion, American Freedom. We were just talking about this, uh, this notion of American freedom with uh, our earlier guest, Paul Rykoff. Uh, we continue that conversation now with this uh, amazing author. American freedom uh, is typically, I think, associated with the fight of the oppressed for a better world. But for centuries, whenever the federal government intervened on behalf of the oppressed, many white fellow citizens fought back in the name of freedom, their freedom, to dominate others. As I think about that, uh, my mind goes right back to the conversation we just had, again, with Paul Rykoff, uh, and what the Supreme Court is ultimately going to say about these protesters, these insurrectionists, who stormed the Capitol on January the 6th. Uh, this is a moment of reckoning for this experiment in democracy as I see it, and whether or not uh, the Supreme Court will ultimately rule that the government went too far in prosecuting these persons and uh, all of these convictions will be overturned. That would be a major, major travesty in my mind. Uh, the government once again coming to the defense of these persons who are basically uh, uh, fighting back, uh, uh, trying to dominate uh, as uh, is the storyline in this particular book, Freedom's Dominion. Not exactly the same thing, but it certainly brings this present-day situation to mind. But that's what happens uh, over over centuries, um, that uh, many white folk in this country fight back in the name of freedom, but we're really talking about their freedom to dominate other people uh, who look like you and me. So the question is this, how did the notion of freedom become a national alibi for cruelty and racism and inequity? I am pleased to welcome this Pulitzer Prize winning author, Jefferson Cowie, on this program right now to discuss his book, Freedom's Dominion. Mr. Cowie, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well, and I'm happy to be with you. I'm delighted to have you on the program. You heard me a moment ago. I'm not sure there's any connection for you, whether you have any comment on that. It's a big, big story. The whole nation, of course, uh, paying attention and watching what the Supreme Court will ultimately do about these persons who stormed the Capitol on January the 6th and whether or not the government went too far prosecuting them. Um, it, would be, it, would be, it would be quite a moment uh, if the Supreme Court were to rule uh, that these persons were, in fact, uh, unfairly uh, charged, and all those convictions uh, trying to overthrow our government would be overturned. Any thoughts about that? Any parallels there? Oh, yeah. I mean, this connects directly to almost all the themes in the book. This is, in my eyes, basically a neo-Confederate uprising against the federal government. Mm. And what the federal government's going to do about that uh, is absolutely pivotal. And we see in the entire history of this that the federal government has needed to step in, tame these ideas of federal, of, of, of sort of white American freedom in overdrive, and be a disciplinarian, basically, for that, and to, to bring uh, the rights of, especially the democratic rights of other people to the forefront. Yeah. Un unpack that comment for me. I'm going to I'm going to get straight away into your book. I promise in a moment here. Uh, I, I love the I, I love the phrase white American freedom uh, in overdrive. Unpack that statement for me. Will you? Will you? Well, throughout history, what we see is almost every branch of the government does the work, essentially, of the white majority. That's mm -hmm. what it's there for. When it doesn't, when it goes against that and sides with Native American people or black people or whatever the case may be, uh, that is often seen as an incursion on the white idea of freedom mm. because this is a, a white 
republic, right? Mm -hmm. So the we see a great deal of animation, political hyperbole, kind of overstatements, ridiculous oftentimes kinds of things. That's why I opened with this sort of speech by George Wallace about these things, um, in which this whole idea of, of, of freedom seems to be under attack and the basic values of America are under attack because the federal government is not doing the work of the white majority. Yeah. You do, you do open the text uh, with the words of George Wallace. Tell me what George Wallace had to say ab about these issues. Right. So George Wallace was the segregationist governor of Alabama, and he uh, ran for president several times, 64, 68, 72, and 76. Um, but uh, he's most famous for the speech he gave in 1963 as uh, is his uh, governor, first day as governor's inaugural address. And uh, that's when he said, segregation now, segregation mm -hmm. tomorrow, segregation forever, which everybody's read in a textbook or something someplace. But I went back and looked at that speech very carefully. And he mentioned segregation, including those three moments, four times. He mentions freedom 24 times. So in this way, what we see is, not a simple question of segregation, which is not a simple question, of course. It's a very complicated question. But what we're seeing is George Wallace appealing to a fundamental American value, a core principle of the ideology of the republic, freedom. And he saw the Civil Rights Act, as he called it, the, um, the assassin's knife in the back of liberty. Right? This is the Civil Rights Act. This mm -hmm. is the great, one of the great leaps forward in freedom for people in the United States, but it was working against the interests of the white South in George Wallace's eyes. So what we see is sort of this, this person we would normally see as a, uh, some, an oppressor, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. is actually appealing to the idea of freedom to do the work of his oppression. Yeah. And historically we tend to dismiss that idea of freedom, but I think it's actually really core. So if you think of say the freedom caucus today, Mm -hmm. That's a very, in my opinion, very impressive group of people who are using the word freedom and not just as window dressing, but they actually see themselves pursuing this idea of freedom to dominate. I want to come to that point. Uh, the book is called Freedom's Dominion. I think you get the link now. Uh, and speaking of Alabama and George Wallace, we'll go right to Alabama, specifically a place called Barber County, Alabama, Barber County, Alabama which is at the epicenter of this text, uh, Freedom's Dominion. But we'll start uh, when we come forward uh, with this this this, this uh, comment he makes just now, Jefferson Cowie makes just now, about the Freedom Caucus uh, in the House. We've been talking for weeks now. You heard Paul Rykoff and I, again, discussing this last hour, about this band of rebels inside the House. They call themselves the Freedom Caucus. They're the ones who are upending and trying to upend everything. But when they use the word freedom, or moreover, when you hear the Fox News hosts use the word freedom, that ain't exactly the same definition that I have when I use the word freedom. It's not what King was talking about when he used the word freedom, Dr. King. We'll talk about these two distinct differences, these distinctly different meanings of freedom when they use that word and when we use that word when we come forward with Pulitzer Prize, a Pulitzer Prize winning author Jefferson Cowie on Tavis Smile. From the Merck Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. <laughs> Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 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 We will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. We are free at last. 
Jefferson Cowie, um, I have a, a, a funny feeling, a sneaky suspicion that when King is talking about freedom uh, at the March on Washington, uh, as he closes that amazing, uh, iconic uh, speech, uh, I, have a, I have a feeling that what King was talking about when he used the word uh, free and freedom is not exactly what the Freedom Caucus means uh, in the House when they use the word freedom, sir. Nothing gets past you. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. You are. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and, and the King speech comes just months after Wallace's speech uh, when he mentions freedom 24 times. So, mm-hmm. that, you know, this conflict goes all the way back. And um, that's part of my project, actually, is to kind of move away from this flawed idea of freedom and, and begin to think much more about democracy and mm-hmm. the tools and the institutions and the compromises that are necessary to actually build democracy. Yeah. Freedom's just, there's just too much history of oppression in the word freedom. Yeah, why, why, why is that term, again, I'm going to follow you through this conversation the entire hour, uh, why is that term freedom, to your mind, so flawed? I mean, it's, it's rare. Mm-hmm. It's rare to have a guest on this program, any place else in this country, who is so, so, so honest and so, so transparent and so willing to say, that the notion of freedom that we uh, uh, wrestle with in this country is flawed. That, that, that's a bold statement in and of itself. You can get in trouble in certain places for saying, you, you, said, you said that on Fox News, they'll run you off the network if you say freedom is flawed. But here you are saying it now, so unpack it for me. Well, that's why I'm talking to you, not Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> Which I appreciate, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if we go all the way back to where freedom comes from as an idea, uh-huh. it's actually rooted in ancient Greek societies, and and what it basically meant was to not be a slave. Um, And so if we take that one step further, it meant not just to not be a slave, it also meant the capacity to enslave. Mm. So right at the beginning of the idea of freedom in the Western world, freedom means not just not to be a slave, but actually to have the power and the freedom to dominate others, to, to enslave others. You take that idea, which is essentially a good idea, not being a slave, and put it in the American South. And here we have a settler colonial project, a chattel slavery project, where that dark aspect of freedom that's mixed in with good elements of freedom, the political community and politics and First Amendment rights and all those kinds of things that we like. And you, but you put that 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 in, in into the into this settler colonial chattel slavery world, and that dark note of freedom really begins to grow and dominate. And what we see uh, is freedom when when the South secedes from the North, they are doing that to protect their freedoms. And it's kind of hard when when Barber County, for instance, solicits you know has a position for freedom. Uh, from uh, from the North, when they secede from the Union, they basically said, are we going to stand up like free men? And what that meant was, are we going to be able to protect our capacity to enslave others? Mm. And that's a pretty dark problem, right? Because this is the core value of America, this idea of freedom. And my project is to get us to rethink some of those things. Yep. Um, what, what does your research tell you about how that core value got so twisted in the first place? Yeah, I think it was twisted from the get-go. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think if you you can unpack freedom into a, uh, a host of things. So first thing we lo- we love about freedom is the idea of freedom from oppression, freedom mm-hmm. from the state, freedom, you know, First Amendments and you know Fourth Amendments and 
uh, you know, all the kinds of things we celebrate about freedom. Mm-hmm. And there's another element that we often don't take seriously enough, and that is your freedom to participate in the political community, your ability to vote, your ability to enter the public sphere. Then, the, But the third element is the one I'm worried about, and, and that's the freedom to dominate, mm-hmm. the freedom to oppress. And, you know, theoretically at least one person's freedom – will start short of somebody else taking over their lives. But in reality, that is not the practice of freedom. Yeah. The practice of freedom is a much more vicious uh, system. Yeah. And, and in fact, those first two elements of freedom, the ability, you know, the First Amendment type things and the political participation things are often used most effectively in the Deep South to protect that third freedom, that freedom to dominate. Mm-hmm. And that is a that's a really dark problem. I love the way you broke down those three those three aspects of freedom, um, which leads me to ask, um, what do you make of the irony? And irony is the best word I can think of. That while freedom is ostensibly at the epicenter of what we mean and what we mean to suggest when we when we use the word democracy, freedom is at the epicenter of that, and yet. It is that bastardization of freedom that's challenging the very future of that's at the center of the fragility of our democracy right now. Does that make sense? That is. Now, the question becomes, is it a bastardization or is it central? Oh, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you flipping (laughs) flipping my question like that. I love it. Okay, give it to me. Give it to me. Give it to me. Well, I struggled with that throughout the book because. Most people will say, well, you know, maybe if you're invoking freedom to for oppressive ends, you're just using it as a bastardization, a window dressing, mm-hmm. a, you know, a way to twist the world to get what you want, because we all love freedom. Mm-hmm. But if you actually dig into this question, there's a core dimension of this freedom that's always been with us that is not a bastardization, but it's actually central to mm. the entire westward expansion slavery, you know, some of the worst aspects of the American experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got me thinking now. You got me thinking. Uh, <laughs> That's my why, job. Yeah, you, and you're doing it well. <laughs> While you got me thinking, let me ask you to take me in the audience to Barber County, Alabama. It is, speaking of epicenter, it is central. Speaking of central, it is central to this text. Uh, you mentioned George Wallace earlier, but take me to Barber County, Alabama and just unpack this for me. You bet. Yeah. So when I wrote this book, I was interested in this question of freedom and what was wrong with it and what was right with it. And I was looking for, I wanted a uh, place to tell stories. So I found this county in Alabama where George Wallace is from, but that's not really why I selected it. And I traced it, this little obscure spot in the southeast corner of the state down by across the river from Georgia. And it, I start with Native American removal of the Creek, Muscogee, people's removal from um, uh, Barber County. And what happens is that, that basically the federal government, white settlers come into what was then known as the Creek Nation and, and, and take it over. Uh, and the federal government, surprisingly, sends troops in to pull white people out of the Creek Indians' land. It's sort of not what we think about. And so, and in fact, white troops burned the town down and all this kind of stuff. So what happened at the birth of this place is a hatred for the federal government 
because the federal government was coming in and protecting Native American rights. Now, that's not a typical story all the time, but it is one one story. And what we see right there is a kind of white freedom against federal authority. And that's kind of the core tension of the book that works out throughout the rest of the book. And that really hits its stride in the Civil War and Reconstruction sections, um, where federal power during Reconstruction, which a lot of people are thinking about right now, which is the era in which the federal government came into the Deep South, reordered race relations, political rights, the whole thing, Mm -hmm. at federal bayonet point, right? They basically said, no, these people now have the right to vote. These freedmen have the right to vote, and you need to. And what we see at that point is a flourishing of a biracial democracy in Barber County. In fact, the only black person to be elected from that region of the country to Congress, the only African-American in the entire history of the United States was during Reconstruction. Mm. And, of course, what the white people saw was federal stripping of their rights, of their freedoms, and their freedom to dominate black people in Barbara County. Mm. So, in 1874, when all the black people, all the black voters from the rural countryside came to the major city uh, and they lined up to vote, they opened fire on them and they shot them in the streets. 80 people were shot. Um, at least we don't know the actual number. That's the recorded number. And that ended both federal intervention and, um, and true biracial democracy in that place for another 90 years. Let me, let me, let me go back to that. You, um, you are a brilliant historian and, uh, you have done some, some excellent, some excellent research in this. Um, but that last comment uh, is arresting for me and I suspect for many in this audience right now. So I want to go back and just ask you to give me a bit more about that. Now, I want to make sure mm-hmm. that I heard you correctly. Of course, I know you did because I've been through the book. Um, <laughs> I, know, I know I heard you correctly. But tell me a bit more uh, about what you just said. These are black people yes. who are lined up to exercise the most precious right we have as Americans, our right to vote. And they were shot and killed while they were standing in line to vote in that Alabama, in Alabama. That's right. And and this is not an uncommon story. It began in the Colfax massacre in 1873, the year before, where essentially they lined people up on their knees and shot them in the back of the head. Um, it, and so this became known as the white line. And it was pushing against 10 years of post-Civil War federal intervention in the South that was guaranteeing the right to vote. And the the white locals had tried to circumvent this in a variety of political ways. It wasn't working. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, the president, got reelected, and they decided to take matters into their own hands. And this happened on the local level throughout the South. And it was a horrific, horrific massacre. And the only reason we actually know that much about it is that the Republican Party, which was the party of civil rights and black voting rights at the time, uh, sent an investigation team down. And we have their reports mm. of exactly what happened, their interviews with what people. And it's, it's yeah. And so lo, so after that, if you were a black Republican, you headed for the hills um, mm. or you kept your mouth very, very um, uh, quiet because. I'm... I'm, I'm, Violence I'm, is the only next thing. No, I get it. I, I'm, I'm not naive. I'm not naive, of course, in asking this question. But 
why why the massacre? I mean, if you didn't want these black people, these these colored folk, these Negroes colored at that point, if you didn't want these colored folk to vote, um, okay, give me another option. But 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 aside from just being cruel and inhumane, why why the massacre? Why shoot them in the head as they're standing in line to vote? There, 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 yeah. there, were, there were no other options here. Well, <laughs> um, they had exhausted a number of options. Um, they had tried to steal ballots. They had tried to um, uh, support an alternative. They actually abandoned the Democratic Party, which is the party of the white South at the mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. They abandoned that to join the liberal Republicans to try and soften Reconstruction. They had tried just about everything. And finally, they said the only way to get rid of black political power in this place is violence. Mm-hmm. And that violence, they expressed as uh, or they did as an expression of their freedom that's their words when you when you said that this was not in that era this was not altogether uncommon do you have any sense of of the frequency or how 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 widespread this kind of violence was shooting black folk in the head while they're standing in line to vote yeah we're 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 just it's amazing so reconstruction went through a a 110 year period of being a kind of bad idea in American history. People thought, oh, you know, we gave black people political rights and it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. We never should do that again. And, and it was a failure of the federal government. Now we're turning around and going, wait, wait a minute. That's a whole lot of ideology passing as history. Mm-hmm. And what we're learning now is that there was actually a fairly vibrant biracial commitment to, demo- to, to democracy in a lot of these local places backed up by the federal government. And what that means is we're now, as we go back and dig through the archives where the papers are kept on all these things, that there's a tremendous amount of threats of violence and very, very real violence and actual murder so, uh, throughout the Deep South. So when, I, when we come forward here in just a moment, uh, I want you to unpack that, that phrase to me, that this violence, uh, this shooting of black people while they're trying to exercise their right to vote, killing them, massacring them was backed up by the federal government. What do you mean by that? I want to explore that uh, phrase, that it was backed up, this kind of bad behavior, uh, backed up by the federal government. And and I also want to interrogate um, to these bad actors, uh, these murderers, uh, these white supremacists. How is it, again, no naivete here, but how is it that you can say that you believe in and that you are uh, all about freedom when you hate the federal government? I mean, I, I, those two things, for some, I think, are just uh, hard to square, that, you, that you're all for freedom, but you hate the federal government. Um, a great deal more to talk about uh, when we come forward. His name is Jefferson Cowie, brilliant historian at Vanderbilt University. Uh, his book is called Freedom's Dominion, a Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power. And you are listening to Jefferson Cowie right now, and I'm glad about it, on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Jefferson Cowie, I think you'll like this. I get all kinds of uh, fascinating messages uh, throughout these shows. Um, uh, this is from one listener. Neo-Confederate uprising. I'm using that language, Tavis. Neo-Confederate <laughs> uprising. I'm using that. These interviews help so much. This one is so educational, so empowering. I am taking notes and I am ordering his book. I thought you'd like to hear that. 
uh, Jefferson yeah, Cowers. Like <laughs> so, 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 so there's that. Um, I'm laughing, but this ain't this ain't funny. What I'm about to get into now. So I, I was just sitting here. Actually, I was actually walking through the hallways during the break, talking to some of my team members here at, at the station. And we basically came to a conclusion that, that 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 the white man is something else. I mean, the white man is <laughs> the white man is a mother, as somebody said in the hallway. I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. And, and 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 what we were talking about is that we at least have some sense. Most of us who are African American and who uh, those uh, fellow citizens who just know a bit about history, we have heard, of course, and know rather well the story of the lynchings that took place during this particular period of American history. So we know about lynchings. But until until this work and the way you bring it out in, in Alabama, we don't know so much about these massacres of voters, these massacres of black people standing in line to vote. Before I get to how this was backed up by the federal government, um, as as a brilliant historian, any 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 thoughts on why we know about the lynchings, but not about the massacres of black voters, black would be voters? Well, we you know we have pictures of lynchings for one thing. You know that kind of documentary evidence is very powerful. Right, it's, it's went all the way up to the 20th century. Um, but if you ask ask an historian, um, they'll they'll be able to tell you about Reconstruction and and the Reconstruction massacres. And there's a much more interest in it now because it's become clear that this was a lost possibility in American history. Mm-hmm. And I just want to clarify one thing: the white, the federal power. In the story is kind of the good guy. They're there ensuring black voting rights. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so the, when the white people start shooting the voters, they see it as what they call redemption. This is the redemption against sin, against evil. And that sin and evil is actually the federal government that is there mm-hmm. to uh, restrain their freedom and allow black people some political rights. So in my story, there's an irony here in which the federal, we don't normally think of, like, I have a lousy, a lousy hero here. And my hero is the federal government because they're the only ones that can come in and take over from this kind of local idea of white freedom and autonomy, mm-hmm. freedom's dominion, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so you, like you asked about why sure, back, people hate yeah. the federal government, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. and, and before the break, right? And, that, and that's key because, um, uh, that was one of the questions I went into this research for. Why, you know, why do people hate the federal government? And it turns out they don't, as long as it's working for them. Mm-hmm. When it begins working for somebody else, <laughs> that they begin to have suspicions about it. And in the post Civil Rights Act era, that's what we've seen, right? Yeah. Um. I. 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 I um. Two or three things going through my head at one time. I'm just pausing for a second here. I, hear you. I, I think I think I want to start with this. Um, I, I get it. Um, but t- tell me, th- tell me about this phrase and how you came up with this as a title: "Freedom's Dominion." Yeah, well, it was a long talk with my editor. But, um, <laughs> that usually happens. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, was, it was tough. So the idea is that freedom is a space of control, a space of power, right? Uh, a, a place in which authority is built and controlled and that that was connected with freedom. Mm -hmm. And what we see in my story here, the story of Barber County, Alabama is this local reign of white freedom has the power in the local level. That's the dominion. And then the federal government comes in every once in a while and mucks everything up for white people and gives Indians rights or black people's rights or something. And then we see this powerful resistance. Yeah. 
against the federal government on behalf of uh, propagated by white people. Yep. What do you? What so do you? I should say the elites. Uh, you know, there's good white people. It's really the elites that are sure, running this. Sure. What? 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 As a historian, what? What is your read on this long war on the federal government? We we we, we are looking at. Uh, as we, we start this conversation, talking about what the Supreme Court ultimately is going to say or do about these right. insurrectionists on January the 6th. Um, so this is nothing new in the history of this country. There are always folk who have disliked government, hated government, pushed back against government. And we saw that play out again on January the 6th in real time. But what, but what's, what's your, what, what, what does your read of history tell you about this long war on the federal government? That's, a, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's this long war that starts with land hunger um, and the federal government, uh, white land hunger against Native Americans and the federal government trying to put the brakes on that and then fighting the federal government. It's the same thing with political rights during Reconstruction, mm-hmm. where the federal government comes in and grants political or protects political rights for black people. White people rise up against the federal government. And this goes on. I talk about the New Deal. I talk about the Civil Rights era. I talk about the organizing by FDLC and SNCC. All that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is seen as a threat to white freedom, and that is the source of animus towards toward federal power. Yeah. Now, you you mentioned lynching earlier. Sure. I call the period after Reconstruction, after what white people call redemption, the period of federal government repose. This is when the federal government's pulling back and basically says, "All right, we're we're out of the like politics business, and we're not going to protect black people, and we're just going to go." You know, we got enough problems. We got depressions. We got industrial uprisings. We got all sorts of problems. So, what happens in this place, in when the federal government is gone, is some of the worst aspects of race relations in American history. In the, after the Civil War, we see lynching. We see convict leasing, mm-hmm. where black people are sent into the mines against their will. Um, we, we're seeing um, the Jim Crow segregationist uh, constitutions on the state level by 1900. All that stuff is happening in a vacuum, a federal vacuum, where the federal government is sort of pulled out and said, you guys on the local level, do your thing. Yeah. And it's bad. You know, they're, they're, I've used the word irony a couple of times in this conversation. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to use it again, so forgive me. Um, but there's, there's another irony here uh, in that in your story, in this particular story, Freedom of Dominion, as you mentioned earlier, excuse me, the government is really the hero in your story. And yet... Where rights and freedoms are concerned, particularly for my people, African-Americans, government, as you know, has also been the center of the problem. <laughs> and, right. and and but for but for our court system and that there, here's another irony. But for the court system, then not today, but but for the court system and, and 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 but for interposition and nullification and amendment and protest, we wouldn't be where we are today as fully recognized or almost fully recognized citizens in this experiment in democracy. So it's fascinating irony that the government is the hero in this particular story. But again, where rights and freedoms of black folk are concerned, so often the government has been the villain. That's right. Um, you have nailed the, the, the sort of ironic, as you put it, or contradictory nature of the book. And so the federal government, is you have to think of it as a sort of potential energy, because there's keeping things on the local level is not going to solve the problem for anybody. Um, because that's really where race relations play out. On the 
the federal government is the only power, and I call it my hero, but it's like this clay-footed, weak-kneed, two-faced hero. There you go. So it's a really lousy <laughs> protagonist to have as your hero in a book, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and, and, but when it does act, that's when, that's when the breakthroughs are, the, after the Civil War, the 13th, yeah. 14th, 15th Amendment, yeah. Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. Uh, parts of the New Deal, not all the New Deal, mm-hmm. um, all that sort of stuff. And what we see is kind of, you know, two steps forward, one and three yeah. quarter steps back, yeah. right? And um, well, uh, well, speaking of steps forward, uh, when we take a step forward and continue this conversation, I, I want to get a bit philosophical here. And obviously, as a brilliant historian, you can handle this. Uh, you wrote the book about it, but I, I am curious as to whether or not how do I want to phrase this. I'm curious as to whether or not freedom in this place called America can ever be disentangled from oppression. It seems to me that it's the, it's the yin and yang, right? Um, I don't know that you can disentangle freedom from oppression as much as I don't want to admit that, but I do want to interrogate it. We'll ask that question of Jefferson Cowie, author of the book, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. When we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Yeah, Tavis Smiley Smiley. continues when we come forward. What is dedication? My biggest fear in the middle of my addiction was that my kids wouldn't have a father. And I started thinking, you know what? This isn't my story. I definitely had to become a better man to be a better father. It's important to me that my kids are empowered and truly believe that if, if they can think it, they can do it. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Joey from Vermont. A farmer trying to get through the winter. Adriana from South Carolina. A single mother living paycheck to paycheck. Liam from Ohio. An injured father struggling to provide for his family. Hi, I'm Shinola Hampton. And I support the Feeding America network of food banks because they help provide over 6 billion meals to people in need each year. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. Get ready for holiday feast season with Pepto-Bismol. Uncle Derek's here with his famous fried turkey. Hey, Aunt Mary brought the mac and cheese. Donna's here with the potato salad. Pepto-Bismol provides fast five-symptom relief for unexpected stomach upsets. So enjoy the holidays. Pepto has you covered, no matter who made the potato salad. When you have nausea, heartburn, indigestion, upset stomach, diarrhea. Pepto-Bismol. Use as directed. Keep out of reach of children. Some people. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith called it an entanglement. I want to talk in a moment about disentanglement and whether or not one can disentangle uh, notions of freedom and notions of oppression in this country. We'll do that in just a second. Uh, after I tell you that this book uh, by our author Jefferson Cowie, who, uh, I'm enjoying this immensely as I'm sure many of you are. Uh, the book is called Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. That book is out in paperback. I have a hard copy of it. Thank God for Jesus. But the book comes out in paperback <laughs> on January. This, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a serious book collector, so I've got hard copy stuff. Uh, but the book comes out in paperback on January the 2nd. I know some of you are already uh, letting us know that you're ordering the book, uh, even as we speak, or even as he speaks, uh, but it's out in paperback on January the 2nd, hence I wanted to get him on today. He's the winner 
of the Pulitzer Prize for this book, Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power. I said earlier, uh, Jefferson, that I've got, uh, I've got a really smart audience, and I, I love this question. I wish I had thought about it. I can't even take credit for it, so I'll give credit to where credit is due. Uh, but, but someone asked this question. I want to post it right quick here before I get to that. Tavis, I am interested to know how Professor Cowie teaches this at Vanderbilt when there's so much white fragility these days. How do you teach this stuff, given all the white fragility that we read and hear about every day, where we don't want to teach certain things because people's feelings get hurt? That's a, that's, a, that's a great question. And I have had, you know, maybe it's because I'm white. I can get away with it. I don't know. But if I stand up with a bunch of students and I have, you know, big lectures and small seminars and I present the facts and I show them the documents and we read them and they have a very kind of humble response mm. to when you, you know, it's because it's not in a hothouse. We're mm-hmm. sitting down and we're deliberating very methodically what the material, the sources say. And I have found them fairly resilient and curious, actually. Um, so I, I think that fragility is in the public sphere, very obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think when you really sit down with folks and reason together, you can get to the bottom of it. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, especially at a place like Vanderbilt in the Deep South. So that's that's encouraging news. That's very encouraging yeah. news. Mm-hmm. In our remaining moments with Jefferson Cowboy, we'll get to that final question, that exit question, uh, as to whether or not um, his read of history suggests that we can ever, historically or in the future, disentangle notions of freedom from notions of oppression. We'll do that when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. I think I asked a question, or certainly one of my asked questions, uh, Jefferson uh, Cowie, is uh, what I posed moments ago, and that is whether or not your research, your read of history suggests that historically or even into the future, we can ever truly disentangle our notion of freedom from the ways in which various peoples have been, are now, and sadly may be for the foreseeable future, oppressed in a variety of ways. I think they are too inextricably linked uh, for my tastes mm-hmm. um, and my values. And mm-hmm. I, I would like to take it apart. And when we're talking about freedom, let's talk about what are we talking about? We're talking about voting rights? Great. Let's talk about voting rights. Talking about labor rights? Great. Let's talk about labor rights. We're talking about discrimination. We're talking, you know, what is it? What? Let's be clear. The demands for freedom ends up being sort of two vague ideas up against each other that's not productive. So mm-hmm. I want to get into into the nitty gritty. Let me. I'd lo- I'd love to share an example with your 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 listeners. Um, in after the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. Uh, Martin Luther King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, sent out young organizers throughout the South to organize voters. Mm-hmm. And then when the when the results came in, his lieutenant, a guy named Hosea Williams, oh yeah, was trying was trying to figure out why some counties had really good organizing drives and some counties had lousy ones. And he's like, that that county has good leadership, but bad numbers. This one has bad leadership, good numbers. This one was done by SCLC. This one was done by SNCC. What's going on? I can't figure this out. And finally, he figures out the problem. And the problem is, or the key is, the counties that had good numbers of registration had federal registrars on the ground in the county. Mm. 
and it didn't matter who was doing the organizing or how charismatic they were or how good they were at the speechifying. It was whether there's a federal registrar there. And those counties had good numbers, and the ones without federal um, authority did not. And so he basically says, look, freedom depends on this, like, nitty-gritty idea of having a federal registrar on the ground to make sure these people mm-hmm. have the rights they are guaranteed under the 14th, 15th Amendment. So that when I think about freedom, I think about that. Like, yeah. that's freedom. Yeah. It's yeah. not some big cloud that we can appeal to. It's a thing. As we as we move uh, into a period, uh, as you well know, uh, given your historian status, we're moving into a period in the not too distant future where for the first time ever, this country will be majority minority. We've never lived in an America uh, where the minorities combined uh, outnumbered the white majority. We are we are headed toward that moment uh, inexorably uh, in the future of this country, which leads me to ask as the as the exit question, I believe. Um, how you read, uh, take to pull out your crystal ball, Jefferson Cowie, and tell me how you read, <laughs> how you read uh, white grievance politics into the future, white grievance politics into the future. Yeah, no, that's a, never asking a story about the future. <laughs> only only the past, right? That ain't what you do. That ain't what you do. I get it. <laughs> okay. You, you, you're out of, you're out of your wheelhouse now, but answer it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But that is the question. And whether demographics is really enough, right. um, because I actually think that the institutions are really what's going to matter. And having those, in, I mean, obviously, the institutions will be a reflection of some of those demographic changes. But when we see things like the Holder decision or the possibility of letting the um, uh, uh, protester, the, the, the uh, rioters off the hook sure, uh, sure. for January 6th and the right. rest, we're talking about deeply flawed institutions. Um, And so for me, the struggle is there. Um, And I'm hoping that that majority minority uh, culture will be able to have an impact on those institutions. We will see in the coming days what our present iteration of the Supreme Court will do and say about these white grievance politics that we saw play out on uh, January 6th in the insurrection. It it, it really matters. It does matter. I ain't holding my breath on it, but it does matter. His name is Jefferson Cowie, uh, uh, amazing uh, author, uh, the James G. Stallman Chair in History at Vanderbilt University, winner of the Pulitzer Prize uh, for the book Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. Uh, Professor Cowie, I've enjoyed this immensely. Congrats on the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Congrats on the text. And thank you for this conversation so immensely. And have a happy holiday season, sir. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you today. It's been an honor to have you on this program. When we come forward in our final hour, uh, the world's number one vocal coach is in the building, in studio. You don't want to miss Cheryl Porter on Tavis Smiley.